Uh, this is actually not a very long section. I do want to kind of park. We, we, we went through assurance quite quickly last week. I have a couple of things I'd like to kind of start out with just in, in giving a little bit of perspective on what we're doing and where we've been in these first couple of weeks. So I started out and we talked about justification, then sanctification. Uh, last week we did sanctification and then assurance and those various marks of assurance. And what we're trying to do is as we, we went through the class last time, and it was an introductory class, and it was supposed to kind of give a, a, a general Bible overview and give perspective. And so we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago, that it's intended to give us some perspective on, on what the Bible's about, and not just what the Bible's about, but why it matters, and realizing that it's one kind of coherent message from beginning to end, and then what that means for us as, as those who claim to believe it. And then two weeks ago, we hit justification, and, and that's so foundational because it really is the essence of understanding what it means that we are uh, saved and, and how to be saved, and, and that word justification meaning uh, a, a declared righteousness. So God looks at, the Father looks at the Son's um, sacrifice, and then when we accept the Son's sacrifice, the Father declares us righteous, because on account of Jesus' finished work, Jesus' sacrifice. And that justification forms the foundation for the com compulsion to sanctify ourselves, that the Bible teaches and expects that because you have accepted Christ as your Savior, that you will live free from sin, and it doesn't just uh, demand or expect this of you, but it, it, gives you, it teaches us that we have the ability to live that way in Christ. So, it's not that we have to conjure up in ourselves some ability that we actually don't have to do something that we don't want to do. It's that when we accept Christ as our Savior, uh, He changes our heart from the inside out, making us desire to do His will. And then, because His Spirit has been given to us, uh, gives us the power or empowers us then to do it as well. And that's really important because that really is the difference between just having a, if you can call it just a cold, uh, cold religion, and religion's not a bad thing. Religion is, in fact, a good thing, but a religion where you're just doing things and actually a relationship, something that, that, that is within, that is motivating you uh, unto, un, unto something, and then not just motivating you, but empowering you. In fact, um, when we read the New Testament, there are several discussions by Paul in particular, where he talks about, um, and, and then we also see it between Jesus and the Pharisees, Paul talks about this idea, and, and we studied it a little bit last week in sanctification, that he, he wanted to do what was right, but he didn't have the means by which to do what was right. He didn't know how to, and that's where the Spirit of God comes in, is that he gives us the power to do what's right. He empowers us to do so, uh, thus creating a partnership between us and God, where it's not just us saying, okay, now that I know there's a God, I have to earn my way to Him. We can't earn our way to Him. So Jesus dies on the cross. He, he saves us from our sins. We have uh, um, a new life in Christ. We have a home in heaven. And then, okay, now I want to please God, but I can't do that in myself either because I've still got this sin nature. Well, when we accept Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells us and then empowers us to do that as well. And that's what we're primarily going to be talking about this evening is that power and what the Bible teaches about it. Uh, last week, uh, toward the end there, we talked about assurance for a few minutes, and um, the, the, the marks of assurance, 
1 through 6, I believe, is what we had here. Um, number one, keeping God's commandments and desiring to keep His commandments. Number two, loving the brethren, uh, which would be loving to be around believers. Number three is confessing Jesus to, have, uh, to be the Son of God and having come in the flesh. Number four, uh, being led of the Spirit, and we'll talk more about that this evening. Number five, being divinely chastened for sin. Uh, that when, when we sin because God is our Father, He actually chastens us as any loving father would do. And then finally, number six, understanding the spiritual, um, that the Bible tells us that the, the Spirit of God is our teacher and that the natural man cannot actually even comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean he can't read the Bible and understand it grammatically and understand it thematically and understand it contextually, but he can't actually, uh, as, as Paul describes it, he says the things of the Spirit of God are foolishness. Or the things of the Word of God are foolishness. You read, they read the Bible and they say, none of this makes any sense. It might make sense grammatically. I know what it's saying, but it doesn't ring as if it, it, should, it should matter to me. Uh, it's, it's just suggestions or whatever the case may be. So we talked about that last week. And it really is, as I was thinking, I was pondering this week um, a, a little bit of this. And it really is an interesting dynamic that we have in America today. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about the uniqueness of our freedoms. It was actually a, a Senator Ben Sass, who's the senator, he's one of the senators in Nebraska. And he was talking, he just went on a, a bit of a, a, um, a he, he went to, to China for a while in a survey of several Asian countries. And one of the things he was saying, he talked to some, some uh, people that had gotten out of North Korea and um, they were talking about how th- there are Christians in North Korea and Yet one of the things that they don't have there is the freedom to assemble, right? And uh, in China, to a lesser degree, this is the same. I went to China for a while and we had to go to an underground church, a house church uh, that was underground. Not actually underground, but you know, uh, it, was, it was not officially sanctioned. They do have a sanctioned church there, but it's very tightly monitored. Um, and so we went to, to an underground church that had been planted in an area. And um, that freedom to assemble is not there. And when, he was, when, when the senator was talking to these, these uh, North Korean um, people about this, he said that they really started to tear up because that, even that concept of assembling together, singing songs together, meeting around God's word is something that's so foreign to them and something that they long for so much. And, and as I was thinking about this, it, it became apparent once again uh, that we are really in a unique place in American Christianity that most Christians have not experienced in the past 2,000 years since the church began. Uh, It's not to say that we're the only time that this has ever happened, but we are a very free church. We are free to come and go, to assemble, to say what we want. I mean, here I am saying things that, um, that, that many people would call offensive and, and they would dislike and, and, and such, and yet I'm free to say them, and we're not going to have people come in yet, at least, and, and carry me off for these sorts of things. And as we think about that, Many of the things that we talk about here with, with the assurance of salvation in these marks, in a normal church setting, you wouldn't necessarily, there wouldn't be as much controversy. In other words, if you're in Syria, you're, you're a Syrian Christian, um, you know who's real and who's not because your life is on the line for this stuff. You're, you're uh, meeting in a different place every week and if the wrong people find out that you're meeting, you... Uh, might be dead. Your family might be dead. Uh, and if you uh, 
are, are uh, wanting to profess Jesus Christ and, and, and then take that next step of baptism, uh, you are taking a huge risk. I was reading about, um, it was uh, a few months ago, uh, may, maybe six months ago now, uh, now uh, there were some Christians that did a baptism in, in Syria, and somebody took one of the pictures and posted it on Facebook, and the entire family was killed by Muslims in the next month because they traced this person down from this baptism picture, and those kind of risks are there. And if those risks are there, you, you, um, you weed out the fakes pretty quickly, right? If, if there's no particular advantage to following Christ and the disadvantage is death or death of my family or whatever the case may be, you weed that out quite quickly. We don't have that in the United States. There, there are no, there's really very few of those kind of weeding processes. Uh, a person can claim to follow Christ, and yet um, their claims are, are just that. They're just claims. There's not much more to it than that. And it's hard to test kind of that fortitude or that devotion. But... And that's fine. Uh, I'm not saying that we need martyrdom and we need persecution. Certainly, this is a blessing that we have. But what I am saying is that in our particular time and in our particular context, that's why things such as these assurance lessons are so important. Uh, the, The marks of a person who is actually in Christ, the marks that I have that I am in Christ, I don't just have to walk through life wondering um, if I'm in Christ, because we have the marks that are given, and in our particular context, they can be very, uh, they can be very helpful. So I, I hope that as we walk through those marks, um, that you saw those things in your life. Obviously, what, what, as I said last week, those are not marks that you are not a believer if they're absent. It's just if you see their presence, it's a good, it's, it's a mark that you are a believer. So the absence of them does not explicitly mean that you're not a believer because uh, the Bible teaches that a, a believer can be what we call carnal. The idea being that you can be a believer, but you can be walking contrary to the commands of Christ. But what you expect when you are in that place is that you're going to be chastened, which is a mark of the believer, right? And then the one that we said there is no wiggle room is that you declare Jesus Christ to be the Son of God and that he came in the flesh. Right, because that that one is the very essence of the gospel. So, before we move on to the flesh and the spirit, uh, is there are there any questions about um, what we covered last week? Like I said, we covered assurance very quickly. So, are there any questions about that or thoughts um, about assurance and and those various marks in in one's life? Okay, this week we're on the flesh and the spirit then. We'll start there and then we'll get into our next lesson if we have time. Um, so I begin, and, and I, I mentioned this last time, we, we begin in Romans 7. This is page 9, if you've got your sheet here. Um, yeah. Um, yep. Um, this is page 9 of uh, the second lesson on, on the second uh, class. And we begin in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Paul writing here, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. That word carnal meaning of the flesh, or of the body, or of the material, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. And he's talking, he's in a conversation about the law and the purpose of the law. Because, of course, the Old Testament law, 
um, was very rigid. And the question comes up, well, what was the purpose of that Old Testament law if Jesus came and now we are no longer under the law explicitly, right? So uh, as, as a believer, um, Colossians says, let no man, Colossians chapter 2 says, don't let any man judge you in regard to meat or drink or the observance of a holy day or the observance of a Sabbath. So I don't have to, I, I don't have to be kosher as a Christian. I don't have to observe the Sabbath days as a Christian. I don't have to observe um, any particular holiday as a Christian. These are, not, these are not things that are demanded of me. As a matter of fact, um, as, a, as a believer, there are things which are asked by Christ, but none of them are necessarily liturgical save with the exception of baptism in the Lord's Supper. Those are the two ordinances that have really been laid down by Christ himself. Um, and then there are other things which various church, um, various faith systems have, have added that are, are very good, are important. We even see some of these in Acts chapter 15. Paul is standing before what's called the Jerusalem Council. And so Paul has been traveling throughout the Gentile world, so non-Jews, and he's been preaching the gospel. And uh, Paul and uh, those that are with him hear that there is going to be a debate in Jerusalem over whether or not non-Jews can be saved and can be a part of the church, number one. And then number two, whether or not non-Jews have to then, if they, if, if they accept Christ and they're added to the church, if they then have to begin adopting Jewish practices. And so they have this debate, and Paul comes, and he makes it very clear that he's seen people who have accepted Christ and who are walking in Christ, though they have not been following Jewish customs. They're not circumcised, which was a big one. And they're not they're they're um, they're eating meats and th those sorts of things that that the Jews would say no. This is class two, yeah, page nine. Yep, um, pa page unless I maybe that one's not page nine of that one. Yeah. Right at the top there. Okay. Yeah, because this is kind of the second the second topic uh, for class two. Yep. Sorry about that. We, we, I'm trying to catch up because we're actually in class three, right? So, <laughs> so uh, I, I have been overlapping a little bit. But, uh, so Paul is, is, is arguing this point that here, and he even brought uh, a man named Titus with him who was an, an uncircumcised Gentile man. And he says this man is, has the Holy Spirit. He's a leader in the church and he's an uncircumcised Gentile man. And um, then Peter steps in. And of course, Peter is kind of, the guy, right? He's, he's the one who was with Christ. Christ said, upon this rock will I build my church. Peter was there to, to see um, uh, the church formed. He's the one that preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And Peter steps up and he says, yeah, I can validate this as well, that the Gentiles have come into the faith. And at the end of that, the conclusion of the council was that, that the, the Gentile world, the, uh, the non-Jewish Christian world, was not required, or really the church as large, was not required to be circumcised, was not required to eat these certain meats. However, they did ask um, a few things of them. One of them was that they, they abstained from fornication, so that they, they particularly guard themselves against sexual sins. And the reason for that was because they were in a Roman and Greek culture that was, of course, uh, we, we see all throughout Scripture that, it, that the Lord is displeased with those things, but there's a particular element of uh, a lack of testimony that comes when you are 
engaged in those. The world looks at, at, at a believer engaged in some sort of sexual sin and would say, there's no difference. There's no testimony there. So they particularly uh, ask them to avoid that and then to avoid eating um, meat with the blood and the idea of not draining the blood before you eat the meat and, uh, and then not eating things that were strangled was another one that they asked. And these were just kind of the guidelines. We recommend that you ask them to do this, though these aren't requirements type thing. So Paul, as he's talking about the law here, in Romans 7, he makes it clear that the law is not a bad thing. The problem has never been the law. What, what, what some Christians will say is the reason why Jesus Christ came is because the law was bad. The law was a bad thing, and so Jesus Christ came to abolish the law and to give us freedom and grace, which is actually not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the law was good. God erected a law that was a perfect representative uh, or a perfect manifestation of what he expected of man. And if man could keep that law, man would be righteous. So the law itself was not a problem. It was not flawed, except in this one way that God was asking it of us. And we can't keep the law. No man can keep it. No man can attain unto it. So that was the problem. The problem is not the law itself, but the problem is that we are absolutely incapable of keeping it, right? So the law is good. And that's what Paul says in verse seven, uh, 16 of chapter 7. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Uh, I'm doing the things that, that I... I um, he says in verse 15 to, to kind of bring us back into our context. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, what I want to do, that, I, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. So he's saying that in his mind, he has a desire to do what's right. And the things he wants to do are things he doesn't do. And then the things that he doesn't want to do are the things he ends up doing. And he says, if then I do that which I would not, if I do those things that I don't want, I consent unto the law that it is good. I'm acknowledging that the law is good in the fact that the things that I want to do, I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do are good, but I, or I can't do, I mean. The things I want to do are good, but I can't do them. But by very saying the fact that these things that I can't do, I want to do, and I ought to do, I'm saying that the law itself is good. The law I've identified as morally right the problem is I just can't live up to it. And this is not just not eating shellfish and not eating pig and those sorts of things. He's talking about the moral law as well, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Uh, th these, these commandments, the things that we still struggle with, having no, uh, no other God before us, having no idols in our lives, uh, that's a struggle, especially for the modern American Christian when we've got material things and we've got... Um, uh, the, the God of self and we've got um, you know, sports and all of these things which are so prominent in people's lives it's difficult to maintain balance and um, so even that element of the law Paul's talking about so he says in verse 17 now then it is no more I that do it but sin that dwelleth in me I want to do right but I'm not doing right and why aren't I doing right because there's still sin in me there's still sin there for I know that in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I have the will to do right, but I don't always have the... It do, that, doesn't mean I'm gonna, that doesn't mean I always do it. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. 
Now, if I do that, I would not. If I do the things I don't want to do, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. The law is there, and I would do it, but, but there's this evil part of me that is keeping me from doing it. He says, um, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, there's in the inward part of me that wants to do what God asks me to do, but I see another law in my members, my, my, my flesh, the, the, the same law that my, my, my mind, my heart, my desire to please God says, I want to do that, my flesh says, I don't like that. I don't want that. Uh, my, my heart says, I need to love my enemy. My flesh says, I want vengeance. And we're both looking at the same law, and one part of me says, yep, that's good, that's right. The other part of me says, I hate that, I don't want that. And then he says in verse 24, and, and I don't know if you've ever been here, I've been here. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But then he concludes in, in verse 25, he says, I thank God through Christ Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So, and, and this is going to roll over to chapter 8, which you see just below you. So we're going to get there in just a moment and round this out. And we talked again about chapter 8 some last week. But the idea is that Paul sees this conflict within us, and I... I Trust that if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you've lived for any period of time, you've felt this conflict within you as well. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a daily battle. It's, a, it's the daily fight. Is that there are things that I want to do and then there are things that I do do. And, and there's the flesh part of me, the, the earthly part of me that wants something that the spiritual part of me says I should not want or or, or, or I ought not love, and, and there's this tension between them. And that's really what we're talking about for the first part of our time together this evening, is what do we do with that tension? Can that tension be broken, and is there any way that I, in my body, is there any way I can, I can compel my body to follow my spirit into that which is right? And, and does it just have to be discipline? I mean, do I have to just sell everything I have and go live in a monastery and, and become an ascetic? And, and, and do I have to just avoid every single thing that, that my, my flesh would desire, right? And some people go this route. They say, okay, I, I love something and I love it too much, so I'm just going to absolutely deny myself the ability to be around it, right? So if, uh, if I love material things, then there are some people who say, I'm just going to sell everything that's not necessary and live very, very minimalistic and, and then I'm not going to have the, the temptation anymore. And that's fine to whatever degree we can do that. But when we live in the real world, there are certain things that you just can't always avoid, right? I talk with people, and uh, people, uh, men of course in particular, who struggle with, um, who, who struggle with lust and who struggle with, with uh, the, the, the desire into sexual sin. And that's one that uh, it, th there may have been a time in society where you could just avoid certain places and you'd be fine. Uh, Proverbs 6 and 7 and 8 talk about this. Solomon is writing and he, he, he says, I observed a young man that was void of knowledge and void of wisdom. And, and, and he was walking and he walked by a harlot's corner. And, and uh, he walked by her corner thinking that he could handle walking by her corner. And she went and she grabbed him and she kissed him and she said, the, the master is away and and there's this opportunity to come in and have your fill of love for the night. And he's trying to resist. And then she, through her, her, her 
words, I was waiting for you, I love you, I want you, and then she entices him and he falls. And Solomon says he was a fool even for going by the corner. He should have known better than to go by the corner. He should have said, that's her corner, I'm finding another way. We can't really do that anymore in our society, can we? I mean, you go to Walmart in the summer, you go to Walmart in the winter, you go, to, you, you go anywhere, and we are in a, a society that's so broken down in its sexual inhibitions that really there's nowhere for a young man to go where he can fully guard his mind unless he just stays home all day, keeps the TV off, because, I mean, even if you're watching something that's acceptable, the first commercial that comes on and you might be in trouble, is, it, is this it? I mean, are we just stuck in this place where we have no ability to function or we have no ability? Well, well no. And that's what Paul is saying here, that there is the means by which to spiritually, that, that the, the spiritual part of me can dominate the flesh part of me so that I can even be in situations. Now, I'm, not, I'm still, uh, if, if, if the spiritual part of me is dominating, I'm not going to end up in a strip club, right? But that the, the spiritual part of me can dominate the flesh to where any regular situation that might cause me to um, regularly want to pursue the lust of my flesh, the Spirit of God can give me the power to pursue right. And that's what we see in Romans 8. But before we get into that, uh, questions? So Romans 8, remember that, uh, that, and this is an important thing when you're reading your Bible, chapter, chapter divisions and verse divisions are not given by God. They were put in significantly later in the text for organization purposes. Sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you get to the end of a chapter and I don't know if you have a reading plan and you say, I'm going to read three chapters a day or something like that. Uh, if you read three chapters a day, Monday through Saturday and then five chapters on Sunday or three chapters a day, six days a week and five chapters one day a week, uh, you'll get through the Bible in a year. So, you know, some people have that plan and sometimes you're reading three chapters a day and you stop at the end of a chapter and... While it's a chapter break, and oftentimes those breaks are pretty, pretty well organized, there are some times where you completely miss the finished thought because you stop at the end of a chapter. And, and like these are epistles, right? Paul wrote Romans, and, and it was an epistle. It was a letter. I don't know anybody who, uh, when they're reading a letter from someone, they read the first three paragraphs, and then they stop before the fourth paragraph, and they set it down. And the next day, they pick up at the fourth paragraph, and they start reading it as if one through three didn't happen. But that's oftentimes how we read our Bible. We read our Bible as if, if I read Romans 6, I don't really think about whether anything that was said in Romans 1 through 5. I read Romans 6, and then I say, well, this is what Romans 6 is saying. But it's not really what Romans 6 is saying, because you're not taking into account everything that's been said in Romans 1 through 5. And we do this a lot in Christian circles. But it's an epistle. It's a letter. Everything that was written in, in Romans 1 through 6 is important to Romans 7. There are a few times where you can see a complete change in, a complete change in context. But, but it's important that when you're reading, if you get to the end of a chapter and you're tempted to stop, read the next few verses in that first chapter just to see if you're missing something. And if you are, then okay, you can still stop if you've got time or whatnot, and you need to move on, you stop there, but then when you start up tomorrow, start back a little bit. Read what you already read. So in other words, if I'm reading three chapters a day, I read Romans 1 through 3 the first day, I read Romans 4, 5, and 6 the next day, and then I'm reading 
7, 8, 9 the next day. At the end of Romans chapter 6, I continue reading in chapter 7, I say, oh, chapter 7 is a continuation of the thought. Well, tomorrow I'm going to pick up in chapter 6, verse 15. So that I can pick the thought back up again before I get going in Romans 7. That helps me remember that we are, we do have a flow of thought that we're dealing with here. So in Romans 8, Paul continues after this, this tension and this frustration, and he says this, this is uh, the second half of, of page 9 there. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. I read most of this last week, so I'm not going to read it all again. But the, the reality for the believer, the struggle for the believer is that you still have a sin nature. We talked about the lamp last week, right? The unbeliever only has one plug, one outlet. And that outlet is, is his flesh. Even if he's doing moral things, there's one outlet and that's the flesh. The believer has two outlets, the flesh and the spirit. And if you're plugged into the spirit, you have victory. If you're plugged into the flesh, you don't. Now that doesn't mean when you're plugged into the spirit, that doesn't mean your flesh isn't going to say, I want that. But through the spirit, there can be victory. And that's what we see in Romans chapter 8, um, particularly um, in verse... 11 there. It's right near the bottom of that page. He says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead, that would be God Himself, dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, that word meaning to make alive, your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is just the Hebrew word for Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You have not been given the spirit of bondage. You are not under bondage. And this is why we, we kind of founded that last week in the sanctification Lesson that you are not under bondage to your sin. God has not designed you to be that way once you are in Christ. You are freed from that. The, the first step, as we talked about last week, is mental. Believing that to be true. Believing that you are not under that bondage. The next step is practical. How do we live that out? And that's what we're talking about here. So, we, we are not under that bondage. And, and the way... I often think about it when I think about that idea of we're not under bondage, we've been given the spirit of adoption. Uh, adoption, of course, is when somebody takes one who is not their flesh and blood and they take um, responsibility for them and bring them into the family. And that's more or less what the Bible says has happened with us as believers is that when we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are ushered into the family of God. God becomes our Father. We become His children. Uh, the Bible says that uh, as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. So we've been given that power to be, become the sons of God. We've been adopted into the family of God, and that means we have new opportunities. I, an illustration that I like to give is the idea that you are a, you were an urchin in the street. You were begging for, for food and you had rags for clothes and then uh, one day the king finds you and he invites you to become one of his children and you accept that invitation and so now you go to be, the, be in the house of the king. 
Well, as an adopted son of the king, as a prince, you, you, you have new privileges, but those also come with new responsibilities. And the privileges are there, the responsibilities are there, and there needs to be a mindset. So as the son of a king, I can push myself back from the table, and I can go back to the streets, and I can start living that life again. But in doing so, I am yielding the privileges of the king's house along with the responsibilities, the responsibilities of nobility and honor and integrity and those things that you'd have to live in the king's house. Well, I can step out, I can step out of the king's house and go live the way I was living before, but now I've lost the lavish food of the king's table. Now I've lost the beautiful clothes of the king's table. Now I've lost the privileges that come with it. And that's the idea. We should not, far be it from us to be standing in the house of the king longing for the streets again. Right? But a lot of times we do that. We, we, we stand in the house of the king and we long for those streets that we were once in. Uh, we even see this example in the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, when, e when uh, Israel was brought out of Egypt, the Bible says that they were in the wilderness and, and God was providing for them and he was, he was giving them manna and they, they lacked nothing as far as food, as far as protection, as far as any of these things go. And yet there came a point where the Bible says that the people of Egypt started, or the people of Israel started longing for Egypt. Wow, you know, the, the, there was fish there and there were delights there and, and they, were, they were slaves in Egypt. But somehow they had conveniently forgotten the fact that they were whipped and beaten and all of their sons were killed. And that, that they were practically only women because all of their sons had been killed. And, and that they were being made to make bricks and that they had no freedom and no rights to do anything. And, and they're thinking about the fish. And they're thinking about the bread. And they have forgotten the, the bondage. And we do that sometimes. That you, you're brought out of this life where you are living for self and you're living in all of this, what, what I'll just call bondage. And, you know, bondage doesn't necessarily mean you were not living well or aren't living well, right? Uh, the, the, the idea of, of money and power and all of these things, the, the, people are still in bondage to their sin, but they have money and power and all of those things. But you're brought out of that. You're brought to something new and something so much better. And then you say, oh, Back when I was, back when I could do that, right? Back when I, I wasn't, I didn't have to be faithful to my family. Back when I didn't have to tell the truth. And, and yet you've inherited something so much better. And that's the mindset. So how do we live it? Well, the Bible gives us the marks of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 to walk in the Spirit. And I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. I'm going to give you verses 19 through 21, then 20 through to 22 through 24, and then I'm actually going to back up to verses 13 through 18 here. But the Bible says, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Uh, this is the middle of page 10. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is like an unbridled lust idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance. Uh, a a uh, variance is uh, the idea of, of kind of losing your temper. Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, 
and such like. And we do see that such like there. So there are other things other than this. And if we go to other lists in the scripture, we'll see those. We, we studied one in week one uh, in Romans chapter one. And these are the things which are what, what, what Paul calls the works of the flesh. These are things which you as a believer can do, but that if you're manifesting them, here's what you know. Anytime you're living in one of those, you're, the outlet you're plugged into is your sin nature. You're being empowered by it. That's the thing that's controlling you. That's the thing that's making you act. That's making you do. Um, we see some things on this list that, that we would expect to see on the list, right? Murders is on that list, and, and drunkenness is on that list, and um, adultery is on that list, and, and, and witchcraft is on that list. But then we see some things that might hit, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not intending to presume upon anyone here and what you might struggle with and what you don't, but then we have the things on this list that are perhaps hitting a little bit closer to home, things like idolatry, uh, Placing anything higher than God in, in value or priority. Envy. Um, um, the idea of strife. right, Stirring up strife among others. And uh, seditions, which is simply a rebellion against authority. These are things that we might struggle with a little bit more in our time and in our place. And these things are manifestations of the flesh in us. There's a part of us that loves this stuff. And again, when we get to anger... And uh, forgiveness, which is in a few weeks. We're going to see this. I, I, I deal with this with anger and forgiveness a lot. Um, when a person knows they ought to forgive, but when they, if they're going to forgive, they feel like by doing so they're going to let the person off the hook. And when you're, when you're living in kind of that anger, turning something over in your mind that someone else did to you, it's almost like a drug. It feels good. You feel justified. You're, 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 I'm right, they're wrong, and you're kind of dwelling on how you're so right and they're so wrong, and they've done this to you, and they shouldn't have done that to you. And it, it literally is almost like a drug. Anger can very much be like a drug. And um, it can give a, a sort of a high. What are you doing there? Well, you're feeding your flesh, and your flesh likes it. And when you deny that, there's a part of you that is going to want it, almost like a drug, and you're denying it. And, and, and that's the idea here. And that can be with any one of these, that there's a part of you that just craves certain ones of these things. And we all have different struggles. There are certain people that actually are legitimately tempted to steal, whereas other people have never had that temptation in their life. There are certain people who just tend to lie. They, they just kind of default to lying, and they don't have to. Even, even in times where they don't have to lie, they just lie. And there are other people that don't think on that. Like, why would you do that? Why, why would you lie, especially, you, don't, you didn't even have to lie about that. And, and, and there are people that struggle with that, other people that don't struggle with that. Uh, there are people that struggle with anger, whereas other people are just really even-keeled, and that's not a problem to them. Uh, there, there, are, there are all of these different types of people out there, and the, the point is this. These things are things, uh, and such like, other elements of, of the scriptures as they tell us things that, we, that, that do not define the nature of the, and the character of God. These are things that, that define the flesh in us. Those are the things that if you're doing them, if you're living in them, you're plugged into the outlet of your, of your own choices, of your own flesh. Because it's there. And then second, uh, in verses 20 through, 22 through 24, we have the marks of the Spirit. 
He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. There is no law on any book that is going to say any of those things are things you should not do. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. This is a, a statement of expectation, not necessarily a statement of, of always reality. In other words, um, this is the Bible is a book of ideals. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of what-ifs about people's sinful choices because the Bible is going to assume that if you're in Christ, you're going to want to do what's right and you're going to try to do what's right and you're going to take the Bible's word for it and you're going to do what's right. And that's why we're here. Uh, that's what we're trying to do this evening is uh, take what the Bible says and, and it's kind of a believer's basics class of, of this, is, this is the basics of what it means. These first several weeks, I've been trying to set your mindset and then after that, we're going to get into a few practical things. What is, uh, what, is the, the, um, what is the Bible, if we're obeying the Bible, what does that look like as far as our habits of prayer and Bible reading in church? If we're obeying the Bible, what does that look like in our habits of, of my relationship to material possessions? If I'm obeying the Bible, what does that look like as far as myself and my family? What does that look like as far as forgiveness and anger? What does that look like as far as myself and society? And that's kind of what we're doing here. And the Bible says that if we are plugged into the outlet of the Spirit, that what is going to come out of me, you don't have to conjure up the works of the flesh, right? You don't have to conjure up anger. Like, you get angry when you get angry, and then if you, if you let that flow, if you don't stop it, if you let that flow, then it flows wherever it flows, right? Uh, some people, that becomes kind of a emotional anger, and they try to punish people emotionally. Some people, it becomes a physical anger, and they try to punish people physically. Uh, we, but but it, when it flows, it flows. I don't wake up and then when, when someone makes me angry, start saying, okay, I'm going to do this, and this is how my anger, I'm going to conjure up this kind of anger. No, it just flows, right? You just kind of let it flow unless you inhibit it. It's the same thing with all of these. Uh, the, the, the responses of the flesh in our lives are not things that we have to work to achieve. They're things that are just kind of natural. Well, here's what the Bible says. That if you're a believer, it's the same with the Spirit. That if you will submit yourself to the Spirit of God, that the, the natural flow of your life will be these nine characteristics on this page. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. This will be the natural flow of your lives. Now again, that doesn't mean that it's always going to be perfect. But that will mean that there will be a default in your life to where when something comes up and you've got a choice to make. And the choice is, do I submit to what my flesh wants or what the spirit wants? And I'm not really actually making a choice between am I loving or am I angry here? It's more or less the choice is myself and what I want or God and what he wants. And if I say I, I want what God wants, then what will flow out of me will be love. If I come to a circumstance and there's, there's fear and there's doubt and there's whatever it might be, and now I have a choice to make. Do I pursue the, the flesh or do I pursue the spirit? And if I pursue the flesh, then I'm going to become anxious and I'm going to become um, frightened and I'm going to become depressed. And if I pursue the spirit, then I'm going to have this thing called joy. And joy is not happiness. Happiness is kind of a, it's a, 
It's a material concept. Happiness is that the circumstances that are in my life are positive, therefore I have the, this particular disposition of, of contentment. Joy is an abiding peace and contentment regardless of circumstances. So, if, so when circumstances are doing this, joy is up here. Right? These are circumstances, this is joy. And this is where Paul can be beaten and bruised and scorned, and he can be um, thrown, uh, thrown out of the city and left for dead, and he can still say, I have joy. Why? Well, not because he just got beaten, not because he was stoned and left for dead, but because in the midst of it, what he knew is that in doing so, he had had the opportunity to suffer for God's sake, and that, that brought him to a different level, a level of joy. These are things that naturally flow out of us when we are submitted to the Spirit of God. Questions about the marks of the flesh or the marks of the Spirit? So in any given day, on any, in every, any given situation, the question becomes this, what am, I, what am I manifesting? What is coming out of me at this moment? And you can probably pretty easily discern whether or not the flesh is in control or the spirit is in control. Whether or not you're exhibiting these elements of, of the spirit or these elements of the flesh. And unfortunately, the, the one you feed is the one that grows. If you think about it like two animals within you, the one you feed is the one that's going to grow and the one that you starve is the one that's going to get weak. Now, neither one is ever going to die in us until the day that we die and the, the flesh part goes away. But the one you feed is the one that's going to grow. And so in that context, if I feed the flesh, the flesh begins to build and to grow and it's going to be harder now to kill. And the longer that I feed it, the harder it's going to be to overcome to where I can actually create habits in my life that are so negative that I have to get help in order to undo. So this is where pastoral counseling comes in and this is where accountability comes in to where I've, I've pursued or I've allowed something in my flesh to become so strong in me that now I need intervention to undo it. And, and it's not to say that those things never happen in the Christian's life, but as a rule... If, if we say the Spirit of God is this and the flesh is this and we submit to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God within us will allow us to overcome and so to bear the fruit of the Spirit and these things are going to naturally flow out of us. Chuck. Those of, those of us in this room, whatever, I mean, we strive to be successful and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you get along with that and say, well, say is there a level of greed there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what you just talked about with motivation is a big part of it. And we're going to talk about the Christian and material possessions in a couple of weeks. There's always been a tension in, in I would say, well, there's a, there is a tension in the Bible that is presented between the believer and wealth. And that tension is a hard one for a group like this to navigate, right? Because you are all 
ambitious men desiring, uh, desiring wealth and to provide for your families. And, and you, you, you deal in, in those sectors. And you deal with a lot of money in these sorts of things. And, and so when we get there, we'll hit it on a more particular level or on a deeper level. But well, let me throw you out. Yes, sir. You buy a molding machine. <coughs> You're going to increase sales, mm -hmm. increase commissions, increase jobs. The success of that machine provides for an awful lot of things. Mm -hmm. Provides for people, livelihood, and all that's coming. Well, they have to have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you need, so, so all throughout the Bible, one of the things that's highly encouraged is giving. You can't give if you don't have any money, right? And the, the, there's a, almost a presupposition that you have money if you're going to give money to others. And so the idea of the Christ, Christians and business or the Christian and the businessman, these are not contradictory ideas. The problem is not these things as much as it is motivation itself. Uh, it's, um, is, is the motivation themselves. What is it that you... So the Bible does not say... It becomes your idol. Right. The Bible does not say money is evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And so the, the difference here is that I can have money, desire to make money without having money become what I love. The, the, the one way, one, one pastor um, that I was listening to described it this way, do you have money or does money have you? What will you sacrifice for money? When a man, and, and, and this can, idols can crop up anywhere in our lives. If you sacrifice your family, your biblical responsibilities for money, there's something wrong. If money becomes more important than God and the responsibilities to God, one of which is if you're a father, you have a family, and there's a responsibility. And, and you know, I, I was just telling the guys before we started, this week for me is a little bit of a, I'm having what, what we call a staycation. Um, we spent, take a couple of days after the Easter season, and I try to spend it with my kids. The reason why is because with many pastors, the ministry becomes their idol. And the ministry and success in the ministry and building the ministry causes them to forsake their families, causes them to forsake their biblical responsibilities. And so any virtue can become a vice. Anything that in itself is fine, and, and really, as the Bible says it, all things are fine in and of themselves, can become wrong if I allow it to. And this is the balance that only... Any, any individual can know. I can look at somebody and I can know perhaps if they're out of balance. But really, your motivation comes down to you. When you wake up and you look at yourself in the morning as a, as a businessman, a man that, that is ambitious and desires to make money for yourself or for others, um, you look in that mirror and you say, am I out of balance here? You open the Word of God and you read what the, what the Word of God says. Is my hand open to others? Am I a giving man? Am I a man that, that is so, do I hoard what I have? And you don't even have to be rich to be that. You, can, you, you don't have to be rich to be a, a, a man who, you can have the wealthiest guy and he does not have a money problem and you can have the poorest guy and he hoards every single penny and he doesn't give, he wouldn't give, he never thinks to give. And he, he, is, he is the one that has the money problem. 
because money to him is life and money and even though he doesn't have it that's his problem and now he's angry and whatever else and he he wants to get at the man because he doesn't have money and money is his thing so it's not necessarily that as much as it is what is my disposition toward money and can I and and, and I ought to be able to exhibit these nine characteristics of the fruit of the spirit love joy peace long suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness and temperance without contradicting my philosophy of making money. If my philosophy of making money demands of me the flesh, then I've got a problem. Once again, if I'm going to be dishonest, well, but if I'm not dishonest, then, then I'll lose because the other people aren't playing by my rules. Well, this is where faith has to come in. The faith to say, can I trust that if I don't do things the way that the rest of the world is doing them, uh, yeah, I might lose some things, because of that, materially, but can I trust that, that if, if I can't do it God's way, God doesn't want me doing it, and that God can make up the difference? Can I trust that if I yield that money-making enterprise because it would be wrong, dishonest, there's something about it that is incompatible with, with the Word of God, that God sees that, and God can reward me more for saying no to that than... If I do it, and I, I, I claim the, the tangible reward of it, but I, I lose the spiritual blessing. And that's, that's really what it means to live by faith, is that I take the, the, the promises of the spiritual and I hold them above even what I might see with my eyes or feel. Uh, the, the, there are, Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? When, when we talked in our assurance of salvation part about understanding the spiritual, the idea that I might yield something that would be materially beneficial to me because of the promise of something spiritual makes no sense to the unbelieving world. But if I truly believe that there's a God in heaven who's watching me, and that that God desires to give good gifts to his children. And that there, there will be rewards in heaven that are eternal. Eternal. Like you know, Jesus said in, John, or in Matthew chapter 6. Lay not up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. If I truly believe that there's a heaven and that it's eternal... And that by passing up on some material advantage that is incompatible with God's word and God's desires, I am building eternal spiritual advantages that, that are compatible and that will last forever. It's really not a hard choice. If I think about it on, on those terms, and I, I really believe this, if I really believe that, that, that these things are true, then to lie, cheat, or steal in order to get ahead in business at the expense of God and what God and God watching me the, the responsibilities that God has given to me it, it is absolutely a it's a bad deal it's a bad deal for me and others might look and say wow that was a good deal for you you could have done that well no it was a bad deal for me because there's a God in heaven who's watching me and that matters more and it doesn't just matter more in the eternal but what we see is that God has a way of 
God has a way of, of bringing that to the physical, the material as well. In other words, um, there are, there are times, and, and I'm sorry, I, I can't give you, I can't give you illustrations on this level. I don't make hardly any money. I, I'm, I, I'm not a wealthy man. I will never be a wealthy man. I don't know that I'll ever own a new car in my entire life. These are not things that, that it's, it's not my inheritance of the Lord. The Lord has called me to be a pastor. The Lord has called me to a, a small church in a small, so I can't give you, I can't give you the kinds of illustrations that, that might connect to you on a more real level here. Uh, even uh, for the guys that were fishing with us last year, I, I gave that, that illustration of owing a million dollars. And I, I sat there and I thought, wait a minute, because you know, here I normally give that, that illustration in jail, that a man owes a man a million dollars, you know, a sum that you could never pay. And then I realized my audience that I was talking to and a million dollars might not be a sum that the man, men in that room could never pay, right? Um, and now I had to bump it up to like a billion dollars or something just to, just to kind of try to make the, the illustration link. Because when I'm sitting there across from a guy in jail, neither one of us can ever pay back a million dollars. Neither one of us could ever pay the interest on a million dollars. We're in trouble, right? So uh, I apologize that this might, might fail to connect to you in that way. Oh, yes, sir. The thought that comes to me is going along these nine out of ten. Yes, go ahead. That you have God and we're working to try to please God or whatever. Yes. But the better path is to walk with God. Yes. And capitalize on our talents Mm -hmm. the best we can. Yes. And promote all of these things. Yes. Without necessarily God pointing us every direction. Just do these things within the spirit. That's how we become successful. And there's a lot more success than just money. Right. Well, and, and you can give back. You know, and that's exactly it. Is if we are partnered with God, and this is the whole point. You, you, you've, you've exactly identified the point. We are not conjuring this stuff in us. It's not God holding us at gunpoint, saying, "Do these things," and we do these things. It is instead us saying. God's way, I have, there are two ways. There's man's way and there's God's way. I've identified God's way as the right way, and now I'm coming alongside God, and as a businessman or as a pastor or as whatever it might be, I am walking in it with God. God is my partner in this, and I'm doing it his way. And as I do it his way, I'm trusting that he is going to benefit me. And there's the, there's the, the, the spiritual benefits, and like you said, there's far more to, to benefit or, or to success than money. Uh, but then there, there can also be physical benefits. So in other words, and, and this is where I was going with th- that illustration uh, that I was kind of giving the, the warning that it may not connect to you. But the idea is this, that I feel I, I, I have a need. And I've got perhaps the money in the bank to meet that need. I was talking to a man a while ago, and he was going through... Um, 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 he, he, he's an evangelist and he was going through seminary. And as he was going through seminary, he had this particular skill and that skill is that he is a very good artist and he can do, you know, the, he does big billboards and those sorts of things. But he felt very compelled of the Lord that he was supposed to give his time and his energy to school, not to, not to work and then trust the Lord to provide for his schooling in, in other ways. And he had some things set up that God had provided. And there came a point where there was a, a, a point of tension where he knew that this is what God wanted of him, that God was going to provide for his needs, but now he had a test, and he could not take that test until he paid his bill. And so he actually said, well, 
I'm, I'm stuck now. So even though this was not what I know God wanted me to do, that what the Spirit had told him to do as he partnered with God, and they did the things the way God had laid upon his heart to do them, he went and he got a job. And, and he just said, I want to I do a sign for you. And, and so he gets hired, he starts doing the sign, and then he realizes as he's going through the sign, this is not what God had told me through his spirit that he wanted me to do. This is, this is outside of God's planned path of provision. And so he actually ended up finishing the sign, but telling the man, I'm sorry, this is outside of what I knew I ought to do, and he didn't take the money for it. He did the work for free, and he went back, and he opened up his mailbox, and there was a check in the mail for him for that class. What just happened there in that illustration is that the man chose to do it God's way, and God provided in God's way. So the, the spiritual blessing was that this man learned something about faith that he carried with him for the rest of his life. This was 25, 30 years ago, and he's still telling this story. But then God also took care of the physical. And so the businessman who says, I'm not going to be, become dishonest in order to do business, he loses out on something, but maybe it is that God is testing him, and right around the corner of that loss is something is a gain that's much greater than what he would have gained had he gone the other way. And we can't always know that. But then there's also the spiritual elements. Um, I'm giving up a certain amount of money for my family. And the other guys say, look, you're, you've got an opportunity here, but it's just going to take more, it's going to take this much commitment. And you say, I'm sorry, I have a family, I have this commitment. And so you yield that money, or you yield that opportunity, or you yield that promotion. But God can work in that. Now, number one, He will bless you spiritually for that. There will be a blessing, undoubtedly. That's the spiritual mindset. That's what we trust. And who knows, maybe God has something else for you physically there as well. But if not, and if God then asks you to bump down your, your level of, of you know, wealth to this level for the sake of your family, well, here's the thing. We talked about joy, right? And joy is that abiding peace and contentment regardless of circumstances. That comes from God. Which means if I'm up here now, but outside of God's will, I'm not walking in the Spirit. There will not be joy. There, will, there cannot be joy. But if I'm down here, where I would expect there to be less happiness, perhaps, right? Less lucrative or less, less, uh, less uh, um, uh, of those, those particular things in this life that I might desire to enjoy. If I'm there, but I'm in Christ, I have that. To where my coworker, who has sacrificed everything for his job, is now coping in any number of ways trying to deal with the stress or trying to deal with the whatever. He loses his children, he loses his wife, he loses whatever, but he's got this job and this career. And here you are, you're down here, and you may not have all the stuff, but you've got joy because you know you're where God wants you. And this is the mindset. This is what we're going for here. What, what, what we're trying to teach is a mindset that says there's God's way and there's, there's my way. And God's way is the one I always want to choose. And that doesn't mean I have to be a pauper. That doesn't mean I have to quit my job. That doesn't mean those things. But if God asks you to, could you be there? Then you would walk, walk with him, accomplish what you're after, and still be on the right side of him. Only if what you're after is what he wants for you. Yeah, right. right? 
And that, that, that's the kicker. Right, that's the kicker. Is yes, you can accomplish what you're after, but you have to filter what you're after through what God is after. So you can't look at God and say, God, I want this, and then I'm going to take it whether you want it or not, but come with me. No, that, that's the, the, when, when Jesus Christ said, follow me, that was men that were doing what they were doing. Peter, and, uh, Peter was fishing, right? And Andrew, they were fishing. Matthew was a publican. He was sitting at a tax collector's desk. Jesus came up and said, follow me. And they didn't say, well, Jesus, come along with me during my career. They, they dropped all and they, they, they said, nets down. I, I, I'm going with Jesus. Now, after that, 11 of the 12 of these, minus Judas Iscariot, who hanged himself and, and, and is, you know, was no more, 11 of the 12, their life changed. But you know, Peter was a married man. He picked up his family. He, he followed Jesus for three and a half years. He, Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter picks up his family. He, 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 he begins, he's a family man again. He, he takes care of his family and these sorts of things. Are there differences, sacrifices now? Absolutely. He, you know, he, they've started the church. He's an elder in the church. He's an apostle. Things are different. But it's not to say that, that God will always ask things of us that are different from our ambitions. In other words, if God places an ambition on my heart, it's because he wants me. He wants that of me. If, if, if God has called you to be a Christian businessman, then you partner with God. You do that to the best of your ability. And it would be a shame for you not to give your whole heart into becoming the most successful business, making the most money that you can within God's rules, right? The Bible says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. So you do it for God's sake. You do it in the name of God. But if you're the, if you, if you, have been an ambitious Christian businessman and all of a sudden that ambition comes, co- comes against God who you're sitting in church one day and you're listening to, to the pastor preach or you're listening to a special presentation and all of a sudden there's a burden placed upon your heart for the mission field. Maybe a missionary's coming and he's giving a presentation about Ecuador and you just, there's something in you that just aches for the people of Ecuador and you start saying, I think God wants me to become a missionary in Ecuador. And now you have a decision to make. I've got a good career. I've got this. and I've got that. Or I can go sell all of that and become a, a, a missionary in Ecuador. This is where the tension comes in. I, I, my, my, my undergraduate degrees are not in pastoral ministries. I have an undergraduate four-year bachelor's in criminal justice. And I have a four-year bachelor's in computer science software engineering. My direction when I went into college was... was cybercrime law enforcement type thing. That was where I wanted to go. That was my ambition. But there came a point where my ambition came head to head with what God was asking me to do. I hate public speaking, actually. I was a bad public speaker in high school. I avoided every class I could. You wouldn't find me anywhere near the debate team or anything of the sort. And then God says, I want you to become a pastor. And I say, well, here's the thing, God. Very similar to what we might see of Moses or Paul. That's not me. And God says, that's okay. I'll make it you. Are you willing to do what you're told? And so now I had a decision to make. I'm either going to follow this career path of which I'm talented, I'm interested, and I still enjoy today. Um, I, I maintain our website. I build our website from scratch. I coded it myself. I love that stuff. Or I can pursue the pastorate, 
One of them has a pretty steady career opportunity and, and good, good return on investment. The other one doesn't get me much. But that doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Because only one of them is going to have the blessing of God. I can't partner with God in that of which God is not, is not calling me to do. If God says, go that way, I partner with him. I go that way, I become the best I can. But if God says, go this way, and I say, God, I want to partner with you going that way, God says it doesn't work that way. Now, if I go that route, can God, can, does that mean that God has forsaken me? No. Can God still work it out if I make mistakes? Yes. Yeah, he can. But there won't be the same amount of blessing. I've yielded something. This is what happened to Moses. So Moses sees a burning bush, right? And he's been in the backside of the desert for 40 years. The reason why he was in the backside of the desert for 40 years is because he killed an Egyptian man. The reason why he killed an Egyptian man is because he was the son of a, of a Hebrew woman and a Hebrew man. And he uh, was supposed to be killed when he was born, but he was not killed because his parents didn't want him to die. So they put uh, him in a, a little basket and they floated him down the river and he ended up being found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh sees this boy and says, oh, it's a little Hebrew boy. And she knows what that means. He's supposed to die, but she says, I want to raise this boy. And so she identifies this boy. She calls him Moses, which means drawn out of the water. And then this little Hebrew girl, who happens to be Moses' sister, Miriam, runs up and says, hey, would you like me to find a midwife, someone to, to a nanny to take care of this child for you? Uh, because obviously she had not had the child, so she couldn't feed the child, right? You have to find a mother that... Uh, was, was still uh, producing milk and whatnot to feed the child and everything. So, yes, please go do that. And so she goes and gets Moses' mother, brings Moses' mother in, and Moses' mother now gets to raise her own child, probably uh, for a good number of years, pro uh, probably at least four or five years old, probably longer than that. What we find is that Moses is keenly aware that he is a Jewish Hebrew. He's keenly aware of that throughout his life. And not only that, but he is convinced that, that because of his position that he's been given, God is going to use him to deliver the nation of Israel out of Egypt. So now he's a man, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and he kills the Egyptian. What he is doing there is he is taking the first step in his own power to initiate a revolution that will bring his people out of Egypt, just as God promised. God promised that he would bring them out of Egypt. God promised that he would raise up a deliverer. Moses identified himself as that, and he said, I'm going to do this. The problem is it didn't work. He kills the Egyptian. The next day he sees two Hebrew men fighting. He says, hey, stop that. You're, you're brothers. We're, we're on the same team here. And they say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses says, uh-oh, the Hebrews told. They told others that I killed this Egyptian. They are not on board with this. And he ends up having to run away. He flees to Midian because Pharaoh wants to kill him now for killing an Egyptian man. Moses identified something good, become the deliverer, but in his own ambition, he tried to do it his way instead of God's way. So he spends 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then he sees this burning bush one day on, on a mountain. And he goes up to that mountain and when he gets there, the, the bush speaks, the, the angel of the Lord speaks through the bush and says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. So he takes off his shoes, he realizes he's talking to God here, and God says, I'm going to send you 
to deliver my people out of Egypt. And they begin this conversation. And, and Moses, he says, well, here's the thing, God. I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good orator. I'm not a good speaker. And God says, that's fine. I made man's mouth, which means I can give you the words to say. That's not a problem. He says, they won't believe me. Who should I say sent them? Well, and then he gives them the name. Say that I am sent you. And then he says, well, they still won't believe me. And then he shows them the miracles, right? He casts down his rod and it becomes a serpent and he picks it back up. And then he puts his hand into his jacket and it comes out with leprosy all over it. He puts it back in and it's... So he's showing there's supernatural power behind this. And once again, Moses says, I just, I think you've got the wrong man. And God gets angry at him and says, look... You're, you're really worried about this whole speaking thing, so here's what I'm going to do for you. Your brother Aaron is coming to find you, and, and he'll be your spokesperson for you. He'll speak, and you be my representative. And, and it's interesting, because as you read this story, God had something for Moses there. You will be the speaker and the representative. And Moses said, I can't do that. I won't do that. And so God gave that responsibility to Aaron instead. Now, was Moses, was he still the one that delivered them out of Egypt? Absolutely. But he lost a little something there in that God had called him to speak in a way and he refused and so now he lost a little something of the blessing. The same would happen 40 years later. Moses is now dealing with Israel in the wilderness and uh, God tells that they're, they're complaining for water 40 years earlier um, they had complained for water, and God said, Moses, strike a rock, and that rock is going to shoot forth a bunch of water. So Moses strikes the rock, and it shoots forth a bunch of water. Uh, the people are complaining again, and Moses, uh, God tells Moses, speak to the rock, and it's going to bring forth water. And Moses gets angry, and he kind of gets self-righteous, and he says, must I deliver water for you from this rock? And then he speaks to the rock, and he hits the rock again, and water pours forth. Well, here's the problem. God didn't tell Moses to hit the rock. God told Moses to speak to the rock. And this was a, this was a you say, well, what, what's the big deal? Well, number one, he didn't do what God asked him to do. Number two, that rock was intended to be a divine picture of Jesus Christ. So the first time you hit the rock, that would be Jesus being smitten on the cross and the waters of salvation come pouring forth. But Jesus never has to be smitten again. And so when he smote the rock again, instead of speaking to the rock, it actually marred the image that God desired to show there. Because after we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we don't have to, Jesus doesn't have to be continually stricken in order for us to be saved. We, we, we call upon the name of the Lord and he saves us. We speak to the rock, as it were, right? And the water pours forth in that next generation and in every subsequent generation. So again, Moses he, it's, not that he, it's not that everything went bad, right? It's not that all of a sudden everything is off. But he lost a little something there. And because he did that, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. He had to die on the mountain overlooking the promised land and he was not allowed in. He suffered a consequence. And this happens in our lives. That as we partner with God and with the Spirit of God, he sends us in a direction. And, and this is kind of how it works. The first thing that we, the first layer that we have is the Word of God. So I'm making a decision. Should I or shouldn't I? The first thing I do is I filter that decision through the, the, the Scriptures. Think of the Bible as a filter. And this is why it's important to know the Bible. I pour, should I do this through this filter and see what comes out on the other end? We're going to talk a little bit probably next week 
um, about prayer and Bible reading in church. And, and we're not going to uh, hit heavily on, on uh, we're, we're going to primarily focus on prayer. But the idea being that God wants us to assemble with believers. God wants us to be growing in our faith and these sorts of things. And so I get a, an opportunity for a job, and, it, and it's going to pull me away from my church, whether that means working uh, when, when we meet at church or whether that means um, pulling me out of the area. Well, is there another assembly I can be a part of? Is there a way I can still be connected to the church? If, that, if, if there's no way I can still be connected to God's people, then it's hard for me to say I can filter that opportunity through the Word of God, and it comes out on the other side as something that's completely clean. So then I, I have to start questioning, okay, either God doesn't want me to do this, or there has to be a way that I can both fulfill God's commands and pursue this opportunity. And then after I filter it through the Word of God, then I bring it to prayer. If it, if it doesn't, if, if it doesn't um, agree with what God has already said, well then, you know, that's, that settles it. It's the same thing with, uh, with other things. I, I talked to a guy a while back and, in the jail, and he came in and he said, I'm just, he said, I, I, I requested the chaplain the other day, but I'm doing okay now because I know what God wants of me. God's made it very clear. He said, I'm seeing this woman, and she's on the outside, and I'll be getting out in a couple of weeks, and I'm seeing her, and, and she, but, but she's married, and we're dating, and she's married, and, and God made it very clear that love conquers all, and that I just need to, I just need to continue this relationship with this woman. Um, and, and I looked at him, and I said, well, hold on a little bit. Let's, let's back up here. You, what, what was the process that you went through to determine that you should be dating this married woman? Well, uh, God says that love conquers all, and, and that he wants me to be happy, and this makes me happy, therefore I date this married woman. Well, well, hold on. Does God ever want something that is contradictory to his word? And he actually said no to me, which was neat. No, no, God doesn't want that. If it's in his word, he wants it. Well, what does the Bible say about adultery? Well, yeah, I know that. No, no, no. What does it? And so we walked through what the Bible says about adultery. Okay, so if, if this is what the Bible says about adultery, do you think that God could want something for you that is in contradiction to his word? And he said, thank you, and he got up and left. <laughs> and, and that was the end of that conversation. But if, if it doesn't go through the filter of God's word, then, then I don't even have to pray about it. I, it's, it's already settled if I have the right mindset. And again, why is that the right mindset? Because I trust that if I do it God's way, it's what's best for me. Because I trust that if I do it God's way, even if it's not what I want, right? I want to, I want to, to date that married woman, you missed some context there, um, <laughs> Charles. But I, I want to date that married woman, <laughs> but um, but but I I know it's wrong because it doesn't pass through the filter of the Word of God. The next question, if it does pass through the filter of the Word of God, is then does God want it for me? So the Word of God says God wants it in general. Then does God want it for me? And the reason why that's important is because there are a whole heap of things that, that aren't in the Bible, right? Should I buy that house or shouldn't I? I'm not going to be able to go to chapter and verse per se and, and find that. There are some people who, and, and this, this has happened to me before, where I'm reading the word of God and some principle finds it, bubbles up to the surface, that kind of answers those questions for me. So I'm sitting there saying, should I, as a matter of fact, this happened when I was called to ministry. Uh, once again, I was deciding, should I do this? Should I make this big step and go into ministry? And then I was reading one day in Mark chapter 10. 
And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, No man has left father and brother and sister and mother and houses and land and these things for the sake of myself and the gospel who will not receive uh, 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 houses and sisters and brothers and fathers in this life a hundred times and then in the, life, in, in the world to come eternal life. And that passage was the con- confirming voice to me through the Spirit of God that, look, I can leave this ambition that I have behind and God is going to take care of me. But sometimes that's not the case. You, you say, well, should I buy that house or should I, shouldn't, should I not buy that house? You filter it through the Word of God and what you're filtering it through first is greed, pride, debt, right? So the Bible has some things to say about debt. It doesn't say that debt is wrong. It doesn't say that debt is sinful. But it does give some stern warnings about debt, right? So I should not become, I should not get into uh, prohibitive debt that would, that would cause me to have to um, fundamentally alter my life or, 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 or overwhelming debt that I, I would not be able to pay back, right? So there are some, some principles on debt that the Bible gives. And so I filter it through the principles on debt. And I filter it through the principles on greed. Is this just because I want, I, I'm lusting after something that I don't need? Or is there a need for more room? Or, or, or is there, do I have you know, all of the means and it's a desire of my heart and there's nothing that has hindered that? So you filter it through the word of God and your intentions. And then you go to the spirit of God. And th- this is, this is uh, what, um, what we do next. And we're going to talk about it more with prayer. That the Spirit of God then speaks to us. And uh, of course that sounds a little bit odd. It's not that you're hearing audible voices, right? You're not, you're not hearing things. I hope you're not um, hearing things when, when you're praying to God in, in that way. That you're not hearing audible voices and such. That, that can be a sign of bigger problems. But the idea is that when you're praying, that you are receiving from the Lord a communication. Some people... Uh, when they're praying, they, uh, it, it's kinda, it comes in, their, in, in the form of, as it were, images. Uh, some people, it's just the impressions upon their heart. Um, uh, there are various ways that God communicates through His Spirit to man, but He does. He does. And that's that final layer of, of uh, a check and a balance, that as I'm walking in the Spirit and delighting in the Lord and desiring His will above my will, that after I've filtered things through the Word of God, then He gives me personal direction through His Spirit and it takes a process of, of what, what I'll just call listening. Uh, listening to what God has to say and then waiting for him to confirm. And that, that's something that grows over time as you learn how God communicates and you learn to listen. And I'm, I'm not saying this in, a, in I'm, I'm not a charismatic, I, uh, I'm, I, I'm not saying this in, in, in a charismatic sort of a way. You just learn to listen to the Spirit of God. And uh, he directs you through impressions, desires, through others, through counsel, these sorts of things, into the way that he would have you to go. Um, and that's partnering with the. That's partnering with God. It's. It's when my I have ambitions, I have a will, I have desires, but they are subservient to God's desires. So that if whatever desire I have, I filter it through God, and if it comes out on the other side then I pursue that desire with all my heart. Then I pursue it with every ounce of my being. If I have a desire, though, and I, I either filter it and it doesn't pass through God's will, either through prayer or through the word of God, or I simply say, well, God, I'm not even going to ask you on this one because this is me. This is my ambition. You can't have this one. This is mine. Well, you can do that. 
but there's going to be a, a spiritual consequence for that. Uh, and in doing so, you, you're going to find yourself in a place that is outside of God's will and so outside of God's blessing. And then that doesn't mean God can't bless you at all anymore, but it's going to fall short of what God had for you. Sometimes we don't even know what God would have had for us if only we'd have done it his way. And that's a hard thing to think about except to, to say that, well, we're human and God knows that and, and, and he's still able to bless um, even if we have sometimes made the wrong choice or gone on the wrong path. Um, and he's still able to bless. But maybe, if I can put it this way, the ceiling of that blessing lowers a little bit. You know, there are some athletes where uh, the, the NFL draft is coming up and there's, you know, the four big quarterbacks that are, are, are possibly going to be taken early on. And you've got a guy like Sam Darnold who is, who's rough around the edges, but his ceiling is probably the highest of any of them. And so the question becomes, do I get a guy that's more NFL ready or do I get a guy with the highest ceiling, right? And, and you, you, can, you can have a, a guy whose ceiling is lower, but he can be more successful than a guy whose ceiling is higher, but he doesn't quite make it. In, in the spiritual life, if we follow God's decisions, the ceiling raises of blessing and of opportunity. Maybe not physical, not necessarily money and those sorts of things, but of, uh, of opportunity to serve the Lord the way he would have us to serve. But just because my ceiling is a little lower doesn't mean I can't be a successful Christian. If I made wrong choices, I made wrong choices. Uh, there are certain things that disqualify a man from ministry. I've talked to people before and they are very capable teachers. Uh, uh, First, uh, First Timothy 2 talks about the qualifications for ministry. And there are certain men that because of the choices they've made in their lives, they're not qualified to be a minister anymore. They just don't meet the, the biblical qualifications. Okay, well, that's, that's okay. Your ceiling has been lowered. And maybe it was that if, if he had not made those wrong choices, he'd be able to go into ministry and God would have, would have had something more for him. But he made the choices he made. His ceiling has been lowered, but that doesn't mean he can't be a successful, happy Christian and go in a direction that, that would please the Lord and, and be, be right. It just means that his, his ceiling is lower. It just means that he, he has disqualified himself because of his choices from certain opportunities. Okay, I've done a lot of talking. Make sense? What questions do you have? Well, what I see is when you're up here mm -hmm. and you're trying to achieve the very best, oftentimes you reach a glass ceiling. The problem with the glass ceiling is you don't recognize that you hit the glass ceiling. And you can be far um, better off and successful. You just back them off a little bit and then running that level. Sure, and um, this is again where it becomes so important that we, like you had said before, that we are partnering with God. So the idea of, and, and again, this, this is something that we can do wrong. So um, Abraham did this once. Uh, and, and Moses too. Uh, this is kind of like the Moses example where he killed the Egyptian as well. He understood the direction God wanted him to go, so he said, okay, God, I'll take it from here, right? And Abraham did this once too. We talked about it with, uh, with Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham, here's a promise of God. God says, I'm going to give you a child, and that child is going to, go, going to become the promised seed. And Abraham says, okay, God's going to give me a child. And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and then he starts to overthink it a little bit. And he says, well, here's the thing. My wife is barren. She's never had a child. She can't have a child. And I'm supposed to have a child. God, uh, thank you for telling me I'm going to have a child. I'll take it from here. right? And so he has a child with his wife's handmaid, Hagar, 
and they have a child named Ishmael. And they, they have this child together, and Ishmael and Hagar immediately begin to become a problem. Hagar is, is now the, 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 the servant of her mistress, Sarah, but she has had a child where her, her mistress cannot. So now, actually, in the woman's economy in that time, Hagar is above Sarah because Hagar had a child, and Hagar had a child with Sarah's husband on top of that, right? So now things are messy. And on top of that, Ishmael is, is not uh, 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 a um, young man of great character. So what Abraham did is he said, okay, God, you gave me a direction. I'll take it from here. And then he tried to just go his own way, and it made a royal mess, as a matter of fact, Ishmael became the father of the Arab nations today, right? The, the very group of people that wants the death of Israel, who happened to be the children of Isaac, the other son, that would come 13 years later. So now we've got this huge conflict that came about because of Abraham's poor choice. Again, did that mean God could not use Abraham? No. Did Isaac and Jacob and, and Israel still come about? Absolutely. But now Israel's got this problem called the Arab nations that has, has plagued them for the past you know, three, four thousand years based upon a, a, a point where God told Abraham, you're going to have a child. And Abraham said, I see that promise. I'll take it from here. And he stopped partnering with God. He stopped partnering with God because God gave him, as it were, a project. And now he thought, how can I make this project come to pass? Which is why it's so important that each and every step is with God. It's not God handing down my, my, my job assignment for the day saying get this done and then you go off and you figure out a way to get it done. It is God saying walk with me I'm going to tell you to do this you do it then I'm going to tell you to do that you do it step by step instructions do it this then do that then do that and at some point you say well yeah that's one way to do it God but if I did this that would probably work and then I'd make this person happy too and so you do that and then it breaks right and God comes in and he fixes it for you, but maybe it's never going to quite work the way it did before. Maybe it's not quite there anymore, or maybe he can't trust you next time, so he's going to have to back off your responsibilities a little bit because he just can't trust you if you're not going to follow his instructions. He's going to find someone that will follow his instructions and give him the bigger assignment, and you're going to get the smaller task. And this is kind of how it works with God. This is our daily thing, and this is what it means to walk in the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit means that every step I'm doing in accordance with what I, uh, I, to the best of my ability, I know to be God's will. And we've only talked about a little bit of how we know that. The Word of God is step number one. That's, that's, the, first, that's the first one. And then after that, it's learning how to walk in the Spirit. Chuck. An Abraham story, but it seems to me Abraham's what? Mm-hmm. The one that kind of put him up to. Yes. Sleeping with him. Yeah. Well, and let me, let, let me explain to you. Uh, so I skipped... There, there's a difference there. Yes. Well, there is, but there isn't. So Abraham's wife put him up to it in the same way that Eve gave Adam the fruit in the garden, right? But here's the problem, and this is something we'll talk about when we get to the Christian family. Headship, right? Um, we, all have, we all make choices and we all have responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities of being a man before God is that you lead your home. One of the great temptations of being a man before God is that you allow your wife to take that role and you submit yourself to her decision-making process. And this is something that is very common, especially among American Christians, and it's one of the reasons why men are leaving the church in droves. 
You do have to live with them, absolutely. But, but the, the, the church today, unfortunately, has become deeply feminized. And uh, I, I was reading an article the other day, and the, the man was making this point, and he said that he went through and he listened to Mother's Day and Father's Day messages uh, in, in his church for however many years back. And he said every Mother's Day message was something encouraging about how great mothers are, and every Father's Day message was fathers are buffoons. Right? And the idea is that, that the church has become this kind of pandering place where fathers just don't feel, men don't feel comfortable anymore in the church. Men don't feel comfortable. All, everything about the church is, is, is feminized. And it's all about, if I can put it this way, feminine priorities. And the reason is because headship has been lost. Uh, this is what Adam did. It's not that, so, so people say, well, it's Eve's fault. You can say it was Eve's fault all day. She's the one that first partook of the fruit. But in the New Testament, the Bible says that Adam was the one that was in the transgression for rebelling. Eve was deceived. Adam was in the transgression. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean Eve does not bear any responsibility? No. But Adam should have cut it off the moment that she said, look, I did this thing. He should have said, no, we don't go there. We don't do that. But for whatever reason, he let his wife claim headship and she made the decision. Now, does that mean I just look at my wife and say, be, be silent, you know, barefoot in the kitchen. You don't get to make any decisions. No. I partner with my wife. I understand her skill sets. I understand she's a better multitasker than I am. I delegate to her those things. But she's doing it all underneath my authority, underneath my will for her. And that's not a heteronormative, patriarchal type thing. I mean, it is. It's patriarchal. But the idea is this. God has, again, can, if, can we see things through, through the spirit and the world? God has a design. We see this with pastors, we see this with parents, we see this with government. The Bible says, submit yourself to your government, submit yourself to your husband, wives, submit yourself to the, the, the leaders of the church, submit yourself to your boss, your master. Is that because they're always going to make the best decision? No. Is that because they're always the best leader? No. But God has a hierarchy here, and if God has ordained them over you, then here's what you can trust. That even if they're not believers... If I, if, if I do it God's way, God will have a blessing for me. If I do it God's way, God will have a blessing for me. So, the wife is called to trust that if she does it God's way, in other words, her husband doesn't always make the, great, the best decisions, but the buck stops with him. She leaves it with him. I can't wait to talk about this more with you. I think it'll be very beneficial when we get there. But if she can trust that, and then if the husband can trust that he has been given a unique capacity by God to lead his family that his wife simply cannot have, she might be the better leader, but he's been given a divine capacity to lead. In other words, if the man says, I, I'm not a good leader, but I'm going to step up and I'm going to lead, God will bless him and, and give him what's necessary to do it. That's, that's the faith perspective. That, that if I trust that I do it God's way, God will, in other words, here I am teaching, right? I'm not a public speaker. I hate public speaking, but why am I up here? Because I said, okay, God, if you're going to call me into this, then you're going to give me the ability to do something with it. And then I'm just going to trust God. And the best thing about that is then, to whatever degree I might be successful, here's what I know. It has nothing to do with me. And everything to do with God's blessing upon me for obeying him. And that's a faith-building exercise. So yes, uh, Sarah's the one that came up to Abraham and said, Abraham, I've got an idea. I can't have children. You need to have a child. Take Hagar. My, my handmaid and have a child with her and then you can have a, a seed. 
And so Abraham now had a choice. And, and he had everything going against him. Number one, it's what his wife recommended. Number two, Hagar was probably significantly younger than Sarah. So there's that natural male, uh, hey, this is, my, my wife is sanctioning this opportunity here. Uh, cool. You know, and, and that's sort of a fleshly response here. And then he also says, I can solve this problem. My way instead of, or my wife's way instead of God's way. And so what he did is he said, I'm going to, even though I know it's wrong, even though I know it's not what God wants for me, and he knew that, I'm going to do it. I'm going to solve this problem. And so he allowed Sarah, effectively, he yielded his headship to her. And that's his decision. That's his fault. Uh, there is no time in a relationship where a man can validly say, as far as it goes, my wife made me do it. She may have nagged, she may have complained, she may have emotionally manipulated, she may have emotionally punished you for that. There may be any number of ways, but you ended up making the choice. And you did not have to. Now, she would have made my life miserable if I hadn't. Okay, she may have done that, but you still made the choice. Am I going to do it God's way or am I going to do it man's way? Am I going to stick to my guns here? Now again, as we talk about this in, in this sort of a setting... This is presuming to some degree that your wife understands submission and headship. We had this, I think, it was, I think it was two classes. I think it was the first round of the intro class. What do I do if my wife doesn't believe this stuff as we talked a little bit about headship in that first class? Well, the solution is not to go home and say, woman, things are changing tonight. I don't care what you think because your wife is not on board, right? And that's going to probably end in her walking away. What you do is, the first thing that you do is you, you establish with your wife this, this truth that the Bible is God's word and that it matters. So if you believe that and she believes that, okay, now you both believe that the Bible is God's word and that it matters and that we ought to obey it. The next thing you do is you do a study on what the Bible says about the family. Okay, so the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife and the husband is the head of the home and the wife is to submit, to respect, to follow the lead of her husband. Now we need to understand that. Do we understand that that's what the Bible teaches? Okay, let's understand now what that means. Submission does not mean that my wife is my slave. Submission does not mean that, that, what, that I can do whatever I want with her and she cannot, she has no recourse. The Bible does not mean th those sort, that's not what submission means. Submission means that I identify my, the, the, the goals and the, the direction of the one unto whom I'm submitting. I align myself with those goals. And my job, my passion, is to facilitate the, the goals of my authority. So my wife's job, submission is not her obeying me. That might, that, that, that's generally a part of it. But submission is my wife identifying my goals in the family. I, I tell my wife... I want my children to know this about, about God and about the scriptures. My wife and I talk about this every year. Such and such a child is struggling with this. I'd like you to start working with her on that. I want to see her learning a little bit more about kindness. I want to see her learning a little bit more about sharing. I want to see this. I want to see that. And now my wife, her goals for the day is to align with my vision for the family. And so she invests her time and her effort in doing that which I envision for the family. Whose responsibility is it then at the end of the day? It's mine. I'm setting the pace. I'm setting the goals. I'm setting the direction. The family only goes as far as I take it. But who's the one that's actually doing a lot of the work? Well, it's my wife. Because I'm, I'm the one that's, I'm, I'm out writing sermons and ministering and doing the things that I'm asked to do 
as a pastor, and my wife is the one that's at home actually facilitating the things that I've asked her. She's aligning her heart with my heart. She's aligning her goals with my goals. She's aligning her will with my will. And then every once in a while, I'll say, this is my will, and she'll come up and she'll say, honey, can we talk about that? And she'll respectfully say, this is dumb. You know, respectfully. Tell me that I'm being stupid. Respectfully, respectfully tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm being a fool. And then I love her, and this is the man's responsibility. I love my wife enough to look at her and to say, I'm listening. And then she tells me all the ways that I'm being dumb, and I say, yep, you're right. And then I readjust myself. But if I say, you know what, I don't agree with you, well, then it's her responsibility to bear that. And to say, well, okay, he doesn't agree with me. Now I've, I've respectfully appealed to him. He has rejected my appeal. Now I'm going to take it to a higher authority. And now she starts to pray to God and say, God, my husband's being a doofus. Your, your, your time to deal with it. And now God begins to deal with me. If it's something that actually needs to change. Now, my wife has respectfully appealed. And in certain ways, she has other recourse as well. Obviously, if I'm being abusive, she can go to, she has protections of the government. She can go to those protections. If I am being spiritually problematic, she can go to the church and say, church, as, as I'm under the authority of the church, if, if, my, you know, if the husband's under the authority of a church, you, you have that layer of protection of the church authority over your husband. But aside from those, the idea then is she takes it to God and says, God, he's doing this. Punish him. <laughs> Make him change. And then God begins to work on me. And she has to have enough faith to believe that God can do it. And so she's not nagging me. She's not berating me. She's not emotionally manipulating or punishing me. But all of this starts with my wife acknowledging submission and me acknowledging headship. So you have to start with, does my wife believe that the word of God is true? Then you have to say, can we get on the same page about what headship and submission are? Then we say, okay, don't we need to obey this? And what does that mean for our family? And if she's not going to come along with you, well, then you have to take other steps and whatnot. But, um, and then be willing to, to deal with the consequences of those steps. But um, uh, we got on this because of Abraham. So we got a little bit off track tonight, but it was good. It was good stuff. Um, so Abraham yielded his headship. And while... It was Sarah. Sarah had a lot to do with that. And she was going to suffer the consequences of her own choices on that. At the end of the day, none of that could have happened if Abraham had said, no, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. So it's still his fault. Still his responsibility. Though she certainly will bear her her share of the blame, as will Eve um, on the Day of Judgment. I want to respect your time. if you need to go, of course, feel free to go. It's 8 o'clock. But are there any, I also want to allow this to be what it needs to be. So are there any questions or further things? Great, great stuff tonight, Chuck. Thank you for, for being involved. It really adds a great flavor to what we're doing here. You said earlier, Bible study, say if I can kind of get off track a little bit. <coughs> we were talking. Thank you. Yeah, about, <coughs> about Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. You know, Guy and all that, he just couldn't relate to Jesus's mantra. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Did you tell me more about Nicodemus? Well, so yeah, so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, right? And as a Pharisee, um, Nicodemus hears Jesus's teaching. He identifies Jesus's authority. He says that 
He calls him a teacher. He recognizes that Jesus has authority. But the things that Jesus is saying are different. He's, he's not conforming to the typical teacher line, right? So he goes up and he says, Jesus, I know. And he says, I know that you are, you are sent from God. But I don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus begins to kind of give more cryptic stuff. Verily I say unto you, you must be born again. And he, he starts saying these things about how it's not enough for you just to, to follow. You have to receive a new birth. There must be something new. And um, Nicodemus is confused. He says, how can I be born twice, right? Can I enter back into my mother's womb and then be born again? And Jesus says, no, that which is flesh is flesh and that which is spirit is spirit. Uh, you must be born of the flesh and of the water. So the, the, the flesh born is actually being, uh, oh, no, of the, of the water and the spirit, and then the flesh and the, spir- uh, flesh and the spirit. And the water birth is the physical birth, and then the, the spiritual birth is a second birth. It's what we call being born again. Um, not everyone likes that term, but what it effectively means is that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so there's this... Um, there's this tension there, and he actually, as far as the text goes in John 3, he does not leave Nicodemus, he leaves Nicodemus confused, right? So that breaches into the gospel, and, and Jesus saying to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and even telling him that there's this thing of light and of darkness. But what's interesting about this is that we actually find a Nicodemus later on who is one of the men who helps pull Jesus off the cross and bury him, prepare his body for burial and bury him. Oh, he was a believer. Exa- well, exactly. And so here's what, what we actually find here. This is what Jesus would say all throughout the Gospels. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me, right? The idea being that if a person accepts the truths of God and actually accepts them, then when they hear something else that sounds a little bit off, but... But they will, they will always recognize the truth. They, they will always recognize the voice of the master, taking them to truth. And so, so what Nicodemus did here is he said, I hear the voice of the master. I, I know that this is from God, but I don't understand it. So Jesus gave him some insight, talking about the fact that there's this new thing that's happening. And we learn nothing more of Nicodemus, except that at some point he got it. As he followed truth... He was willing to say, I don't quite understand what this is about, but I know that it's true. I can, I can tell that it's true. And then he just, he, he followed. He followed the truth where it went, and it led him to, to belief. Um, even though in the, those first days, he was very confused over truth. He didn't quite understand how what he was hearing meshed with what he had learned. And so what he ended up having to do is recognize that there were certain things of the Pharisees that needed to be thrown out. And then other things having to do with the law that were absolutely compatible. And then you just follow the truth where it goes. And that's what we all need to do in our lives. You know, maybe even as I've said some things this evening, and I'm not saying that I'm right in everything I say by all means, but um, as, I, as I've said some things this evening, maybe uh, you, you, you've heard something and you've said, that's right. The Spirit of God, as it were, has said, that's right. But then you start thinking about it and you say, but it doesn't. Compute. It doesn't make sense, or I don't, I don't know how that could possibly happen in my life. I'm, I'm not experiencing that. I'm not realizing that. We'll follow the truth where it goes. Just keep following that path. And the scriptures say, if you seek me, you will find me if you search with all your heart. So just stay on the path. 
Uh, God's not asking any of us to wake up one day perfect. Uh, He's just asking us to keep walking. And the one thing that you don't want to do is say, and this is why we've been trying to set a mindset, the one thing you don't want to do is say, well, I'm just stuck in sin and I can't do anything about it, so I'm just done. Okay, now now you've gotten off the path. Or, okay, well, yeah, I've got this, I've heard this thing about headship, but my wife is never going to go for that, so I'm not even going to try. Okay, well, now you've just stepped off the path. Why not at least try to take truth at its word and go where it goes. Okay, I've heard this thing about integrity in business, but that's going to really be, I get it, it makes sense, that's absolutely true, but it's just not going to work out for me, not, not for my situation, so I'm just going to hop off the path. Well, no, just stay on the path. Take it a step at a time. If you do something wrong, admit you've done it wrong, get it right, get back on the path, and keep going. And that's what Nicodemus did. And uh, he ended up well, I there. Well, him more than a lot of these other people in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for coming, Charles. Good to see you. Yeah, we'll see you. Hopefully next week. Lord willing. Anything? All about faith. Yeah. yeah. Believing or that if you make that decision, God's way versus the world's way, that He will bless you. It'll be the right decision, and you'll bear the fruit of that decision. Yep. Somehow. Somehow. And and sometimes that's not what I see or what I feel at the moment. Maybe something completely different. But, it's, it, but, but it is going to happen. It, so, so Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, plants, that will he also reap. He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. He that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. I cannot sow into my flesh. and ex- So I can't plant corn and expect watermelon to grow. It's just never going to happen. And if I plant the fruit of the, the, the works of the flesh in my life, if that's what I pursue, I cannot expect the fruit of the Spirit to come out of it. People that are not living under the fruit of the Spirit today and they're wondering why they don't have joy or why they don't have peace or why they don't have love or why they, you know, why? Well, look at what you've been planting. And, and, and what, what's growing is what you planted. So start planting something different. And it is about faith. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I must believe two things. This is what faith is. Faith is, number one, I believe that God is, that he has authority and that he's spoken to me. I've identified it. Number two, I believe that if I do it God's way, it will be what's best for me, even if I don't understand that. Even if today it seems as though I'm losing something or missing something because I'm following God, there is a plan and if I do it God's way, it is what's best for me. And that's really the essence of the Christian life. It's just moment by moment faith. Is, if I do it God's way, can I trust that it's best, even in those times where I just don't want to, right? It would be easier just to let my wife have this one, but I'm the head of the home. If I do it God's way, and I, I, I take the headship here and I say, no, I don't agree with her on that, and I'm not just going to let her have that one. I'm going to do what's best for my family. Can I believe that, even though it's going to cause a little bit of tension, in the short term, that maybe, just maybe, enough of those decisions might bring my wife to a new spiritual plateau. Or might, might be enough that my children see a distinction and say, I want that. And next thing you know, my children are now loving the Lord and, and on fire in a new way because dad just made a decision to do what's right. Same with mom. Can, can she, can, yeah, he, husband's making this decision. Can I just submit? And if she has that spirit of submission, can she trust that even if, that might actually mean we're, the family is going to be worse off on the short term because 
husband's making a dumb decision and I've appealed and he's not listening? Can I trust that if I submit and I, I do my part, that maybe, maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it has nothing to do with my husband, or maybe my husband, the Lord is now working on my husband and, and he'll, he'll, he'll have a spiritual growth from it, or maybe it's just my children are watching my example. And now they've just learned something about the relationship, not just between the wife and the husband, but the Bible says in Ephesians 5 that it's also teaching about the relationship between Christ and the church. Our children relate to Christ and the church through the relationship between a husband and a wife. So my children will understand better how the church is supposed to function as they see a submissive wife. My children will understand better the nature of a loving father, of a loving God, excuse me, by the example of a father who loves them. And I can't tell you how many people in the jail, when I, when I try to teach them about God, and they're having a hard time, especially the young women, or the women, young and old, it comes back to absentee father or abusive father. And so here I am trying to tell them that their father in heaven loves them, and when I say father, they cringe. Or they say, I don't even know what that is. And here they are absolutely unable to relate to the concept of a father because their father failed. And maybe it is that if I as a father can, can just take the step of faith and say, you know what, I'm going to yield that business opportunity to spend more time with my kids, that might bring spiritual dividends that I can't even see. I mean, we're talking 20 years, 30 years down the road. Oh, where is this? <clears throat> The change that's going on right now, where's that going to leave us right now with 50% of the children are raised by a single parent? Yeah. You know, and, and fathers, particularly in the black community, yes. are just out of society. Yep. And, and the, the fact that, that there are this many fatherless homes is leading to everything that we, I mean, as far as the actual societal cultural problems of the day, the number of people that are, that are in jails and prisons, the number of people that are on, um, Medi- uh, on, on drugs and alcohol, the, 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 even, even the, uh, the Me Too movement, this, this idea that for years women have been seeking the affirmation of men because they've not had fatherly figures to love them and protect them, and now they, they, they're, <laughs> they've been taking, they, they've been at, I'm, I'm going to be careful saying this, they have been yielding to this pressure to seek the affirmation of men because of such poor family structure and father figures, and now they, they say, how dare these men do this, right? And it's creating this cultural crisis where men have been not just allowed to, but have been almost asked to, in a sense, do the, to, to treat women this way for years. And then now men are, are, are reaping, and, and, and it doesn't take the responsibility off the men. They shouldn't have done it. They're dirt, right? They're dirt. But... The, the cultural crisis is, is in, in large part created by the breakdown of the nuclear family. And, and then we're talking about the, the idea of, of children not knowing how to work today, not uh, entitlement mentality, not, not being able to, uh, uh, you know, the, these, these kids, they come out of, out of college with X number of thousands of dollars in, in debt, and then they expect that they're entitled to this job, right, without having to work their way up the ranks and all of this. And then they complain because this job can't pay off my student loans. And, and then they feel like society somehow owes them something. Well, that's all coming from the fact that there was never a dad that looked at them and said, hey, son, the world owes you nothing. 
The world owes you absolutely nothing. But that doesn't happen anymore because of the breakdown of the nuclear family. And so these things have repercussions. And this is where faith comes in. The, the reason faith and, and, and the sowing of the seed of the Spirit reaps dividends in any number of ways. And I'm not saying, I mean, if you grew up in a, in a single-parent home and you are successful, that can happen. I'm not saying it can't happen. Of course not. But it puts you on the wrong foot to start out. It, 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 it cripples you to start out, and you have to fight your way out when you don't have what God designed. And again, the family is a part of God's design, right? So even the unbeliever who's aligning with this element of God's design is going to face the natural benefits of it in, in society. And if we don't come back to community, you know, uh, social media is destroying cult- this culture. The fact that there's no community anymore, that people feel, I mean, they've got a thousand Facebook friends, but they're alone. They are alone. They have no friends. They have no social life. Uh, and, and then, of course, social media has become a cesspool of anger, right? And it's just a bunch of extremists just yelling back and forth at each other. And, and uh, studies have shown that if you're on social media, anxiety, depression, stress are all through the roof, higher than they would be otherwise. So we've got this social media problem. Then we have the breakdown of the, of the family and the breakdown of community. Uh, churches, you know, people, uh, f- a full three-quarters of young people are leaving the church. Um, there's nothing taking its place. Whereas there used to be community and, and such. This is why so many soldiers, I was talking to my wife about this. I, I, work, I work with uh, some soldiers that, that go through PTSD and I've done some training on that. Post-traumatic stress disorder. And why are we seeing the huge, uh, now it's always happened, right, after World War. I mean, you can even see it. You can even read stories about PTSD after the Civil War and such. You can read about it in Roman literature after some of their wars. But why is it going through the roof today? Why is, why is the veteran problem so heavy today when, I mean... What, you, in, in, in the last 12 years of war, there's been, what, a few thousand soldiers that have died? I mean, it's not like wars of the past where you're talking hundreds of, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands die. What, why? What's, what's, the, what's going on here? Soldiers come back and there's no community. There's no one to surround them, to help them, to love them, to bring them into real life again, to assimilate them, the, 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 the breakdown of the nuclear family, uh, all of these things are causing our soldiers to come back and have nothing to help them up, to keep to, to refocus their minds and to give them something to to live for other than themselves, and so they become selfish and self-centered, and that just. I want to change the subject. Sure. I'd like you to enlighten us so we can go home enthused and whatever. This is kind of heavy, heavy. One thing I would say that the, the first time we did this, um, so you talked about, you know, again, sales guys, success, yeah. numbers, all, all that stuff, right? So that starts to speak to me. So I talked to Greg Hyman about the whole money thing, right? So I'm a saver by heart. My wife stays home. I have two kids. You know, I want to send them to college, all this stuff. So I had this conversation with Greg, and he said, listen, you have money. Will you give it away tomorrow to God? And if the answer is yes, who cares how much money you have? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, you got to work on that. Right. And that really spoke to me. I'm like, that there, perfect. Yes. Because I know where that barometer is now, right? Yep. Whether I'm a hoarder, right? Or I'm a, you know, and that's crazy. Like all, everything I have is God. Right. He can take it whatever he wants it. I'm just holding on to it per se, you know, it's in a, a you know, whatever, you know, however you want to describe it. Yeah. 
So that really spoke to me. So if I find myself, like, you know, Darren knows I like to fish. So I have a pretty decent boat. If I can't get the keys to you today and say, listen, go, you know, go have fun, bring it back whenever you're ready. If I can't do that or if I want to hold on to it, yep. then I have to test myself and say, knock it off, give it up. Right? Yep. That really spoke to me, and that was, you know, obviously last year. So that's, and it's not always perfect, right? Right. So there's always that kind of like, you know. Yep. And we're always assessing and we're always re having to reassess. And, and, and I'll take it a step further. You know, this is kind of the Job principle. Um, so money, house, those things, right? If I can't lose them tomorrow and still be okay with God, I've got an idolatry problem. That, that is the line. Is it, is it my money or is it God's money? Is it my house or is it God's house? If God chose to take it away, that's fine. Well, the interesting thing, you know, Job, Job lost everything and he, the Bible says he fell down on the ground and worshipped and said, naked came out of my mother's womb and naked will I return. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he, and, and he said, God be, God be true and every man a liar. Where that, where, where that next step comes is, is it the same with my kids? My wife? My job? Are all those there too? If, my, if, if, I, if I drove home tonight and I get home and my house is a pile of ashes and my entire family is in that pile of ashes, can I still say, God be praised, it was all God's, he took it, he gave it away, that's, that's of God. If not, then maybe my family has become my idol. If I can't say, God, if I walked into work on Monday and they said, Turn around and walk out. You're done here and be okay. I can still have, if I cannot do that and still bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, then I have an idol. And that is the barometer. That's the barometer of every material possession. Do I hold the things in my life loosely enough that if God were to ask them of me, he can have them? And that, that, that's, that's the line. And then if I'm there, number one, God may not, probably won't ask me for, for those things, right? But he may. Number two, I appreciate them more because they're from God. They are gifts. Life is a gift. Every day is a gift. My health is now a gift. I'm not entitled to my health. But every day that I wake up and I have good health, that is of the Lord. That is God's gift to me. And now I say, okay, if my family is God's gift to me, and my health is God's gift to me, and my job is God's gift to me, and my car is God's gift to me, and my bank account is God's gift to me. Now, what does he want me to do with it or them? And all of a sudden, my, my mindset is now set on glorify God with what you have because it's all God's anyway. And it's just, I'm borrowing it for a time. So great. Uh, then comes the peace and the joy. And the That's right. Then there's no stress. There's yes. no anxiety. Right? Nope. Yeah, and then it's just you're, you're in one sense you're kind of along for the ride, right? You're along for the ride, and then you have decisions to make, and tough times come. See you, Chuck. Um, um, Almost wearing that same jacket today. Almost wearing that same jacket today. You know, the, the the day that your your parent dies, your your mourning, and the 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 times where. You, real, you, you get that doctor, you know, the, the tests come back and there's something wrong. You're, you're not happy. But what you can say is, okay, could God have kept this from me? Yes. Did he choose to give it to me? Yes. Does that mean that it's what's best for me? 
Yes. Now, there are times where that's not the case. There are times where I do something stupid, and now I'm paralyzed, right? Um, because I went and I, I decided to, to do a backflip off the back of the house, and I, you know, and, and now I say, well, did I make a choice? Yes. Could God have protected me? Yes. Did he choose to? No. Was it this, the, the outworking of my own actions? Yes. Do I have to live with that? Yes. Can God still use me in spite of that? Yes. And so in my errors or in my selfishness or in my sin, I repent. Now, of course, you know, um, sin would be, okay, I have failed and now I've disqualified myself from this or that or I've harmed someone. Um, and, and now can God still use me? Yes. Are there consequences? Yes. Will I bear those consequences? Yes. But is God still good? Yes. Does he still love me? Yes. And, and there are all those lines that need to be drawn. But that really is um, the essence of, again, by faith, this is, this is how we live life. And then when we are there, life just becomes, it becomes everything that, that the Spirit of God wants it to be. And then we become a testimony to the world. This is what makes us different from the world. If we're just in the rat race and we've got the anxiety and the depression and the despair and everything that they're going through, and then you say, hey, come to church. God loves you, and, and he wants to make things better. And they say, like you, right? They say, like, like, better like you. You, know, you, you. you come to work around the water cooler and you say, oh, your wife is this and your kids are that. And you got all the same problems I do, except yours are worse. <laughs> and, uh, and then... You tell me that I need to find your God. But, and, and, and again, that doesn't mean you come to the water cooler and say, I'm perfect, my family's perfect. But you say, hey, my wife is really struggling with this. She, she went to the doctor and she got this diagnosis. But you know what? Um, but we're, we're just so thankful. And they say, well, how can you be so content? How can you have such joy? How can you still come to work and, and say, praise the Lord, when these are going on? And that's where there's testimony. And how can, you know, how, how can you live in this plane when life is so hard? Well, because life is a gift from God. And uh, how can you, you know, have this mindset? Well, because my treasures, my true treasures are in heaven. And everything else is just gravy. It's God's blessings upon me, um, which is how the Syrian Christian who's ducking martyrdom every day of their life can live in joy just as we can here when we have no persecution to speak of and how if persecution were to find its way to our shores we ought to be able to maintain the joy that we would find otherwise so thank you for for that that's a really great way to put it and uh, um, does boil it down in a really simple way which Greg is good at doing sometimes <laughs> In certain contexts, we'll put it that way. All right.